Good morning on this Advent Thursday. Glad you're here. That uh, Advent hymn we sang is so meaningful. You can hear the cry of God's people that uh, the Messiah would come. And that first line kind of tells it all. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And that hymn kind of shows us something important about the text we're going to study today. And that is that we really best understand God in times of distress and times of need. It's one thing to have everything going right for you. You're in really good health. All your children cut their hair in the right way or whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, you know, wear the right clothes, marry the right people. You know, your life's just going fine. And when that happens, you all know we're very tempted to presume upon God to think for a moment that we really don't need Him, that, that kind of like a deist, you know, he, he created things and kind of set it in order, and now it's every man for himself. But when things get down, and when you're under attack, and when you're lonely, and when things are not going well, it's amazing how your theology gets deeper, your relationship with God gets deeper. It's true with David. If you will look at the Psalms, you will notice that most of David's Psalms are coming from difficult situations. And the reason for that is that when David is in a difficult situation, he looks to the Lord in a deeper, stronger way than he does when things are going well. And as a matter of fact, if you just look on your Amen outline on that first page of your notebook, if you have it here, You'll see the psalms that we want to study. And look when the psalms start kicking in. It's today. And there are a bunch of psalms that David wrote in these circumstances when he's on the run. And from chapter 21 through the end of chapter 23, we're going to see especially that David is on the run. Jonathan can't help him. His wife, Michael, can't help him. Uh, he, that, that man's on his own now. It's, it's him and Saul. And there's no question about it now. Saul is his arch enemy out to destroy him. And Saul has all the power. He's king. And David is but a shepherd boy who's now going to be in exile in caves over and over again. But during this time, we're going to see that just like the hymn writer here that speaks from below, speaks from a sense of need, uh, the understanding of who God is and what He's done for us gets deeper and deeper. So if you ask of what value are all these difficult times I'm having, all these frustrations that I face, I'll tell you, one of the beauties of it, one of the benefits of it is you're going to learn more about God. You're either going to turn your back on Him or you're going to turn your face to Him and cry out to Him the way that David did. So let's take a look at really five um, separate little scenes in, uh, uh, in this great drama of David's life in uh, fleeing from Saul. And we'll begin with chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And here we're going to see David now beginning his fleeing from Jerusalem, fleeing from Saul. And he's just going to go up a couple of miles to a place called Nob. Nob is where it seems that the priestly class has gone once Shiloh was destroyed. And you remember what happened there. We've studied that. The priests seem to have gone from Shiloh to Nob, just two miles north of Jerusalem. So it's just a pretty quick walk, you know, just a 30-minute walk. And that's the first place David goes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that now that he's fleeing for his life, first place he goes is to the heirs of Samuel, uh, the priests. And we know later on in 1 Samuel that at least David was reported to have gone there to seek spiritual counsel. And he went there for other reasons too, as we'll see in this text. But he certainly went there to get encouragement from the priestly class. So David's first instinct is not a bad instinct at all. He's going up where the priests are, but we'll see that he also has some other motives. Let's look at uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, 
The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Okay, let's notice that one thing that we learn in our times of distress is that in our poverty, God feeds us. In our poverty, God feeds us. He provides for us. Now, David goes to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, we know from earlier texts that Ahimelech is the brother of Ahijah. And Ahijah joined Saul as his spiritual advisor. So David probably is not completely trusting Ahimelech because his brother is the spiritual advisor to Saul. So if you're wondering why is David telling a bunch of lies, that seems to be one possible scenario. The other possible scenario is he wants to protect Ahimelech. He, wants to give, he doesn't want to give him the truth because then Ahimelech will be responsible for David's capture. And he wants to exonerate Ahimelech by not telling him the truth so that Ahimelech can later truly say that he didn't know anything about Saul pursuing David, which would be true because David didn't tell him that he was being pursued. Now, it doesn't help him much, as you'll see later, uh, when it comes to Saul, who's so cruel. But uh, David... You know, there's not a comment given here about whoo, there's not a comment given here about whether this is right or wrong, whether David's ethics were correct or incorrect. That's not the point of the text. This is really strange, isn't it, Jim? It's all right. Lord, is that you? Yeah. No, I tell you what, in the in PA systems, it's always Baal's above. It's not the Lord. It's they, one of one of my uh, uh, mentors in the in pastoral ministry said. He was convinced that that's where Beelzebub hung out was in PA systems. They're always going wrong. Not PA system directors. I want everybody to know that. It's the PA system. Uh, okay, so David, uh, there's no comment here about whether what David did was right or wrong. It just is. And the point is not really David's ethic. The point is what is God doing here? And you can see that when David flees, he doesn't have any weapons he doesn't have any food, and he's got a bunch of men with him, and they're hungry, and David has no provision. He is just a wandering uh, pariah uh, out in the villages, and he can't go to just anybody because Saul has his people everywhere, and David will be found out. So David is in desperate straits. He has no way to provide for himself, and here you see that God provides for him. And uh, so how does he provide? Well, the, the priest says, look, I don't, I don't have enough bread. I don't have five big loaves of bread. By the way, these loaves that they, they went into the holy place in the tabernacle, they weren't little loaves like your wife puts on the table in the little basket. They were huge. They were like three and a half pounds each. So these are big loaves. And remember, every Sabbath, 12 loaves were put in, in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle representing 
that God is feeding His 12 tribes of Israel. He's the one who cares for them. So those loaves go before the Lord. Now, who eats the old loaves? Only the priests. And this is clearly there in Leviticus. So it was a priestly rule that only the priests will eat that bread. So David goes, and Ahimelech doesn't have any provision for him. He says, all I've got is the sacred bread. Now, that would be like someone coming in off the street and saying, Pastor, I'm starving. Do you have anything for me to eat? I don't have any provision. There's nothing in the fellowship hall, nothing in the kitchen. All we've got is communion bread. And the question is, are you going to feed the hungry with communion bread? You better believe it. We're going to break all the rules. Now, I've had children come up to me before after communion and say, Pastor Sandy, could I have some of the communion bread? They just want to eat it. I say, no. Why? Because it's sacred bread. It's been, it's been uh, consecrated for communion. It's been given over for that particular use. And we want to teach our children that it is given over for the sacrament of the body of Jesus Christ in our midst. And so therefore, we don't just go back in the back and snack on it. So I would say no to the little child who asked me. I did say no to the little child. But to the one who comes in off the street and there's no other way to feed him, you better believe I'm emptying the communion bread. And we'd be better to have a service without communion bread than to turn down the hungry. That's the decision that the priest here made. And you may say, well, but the laws in Leviticus. But you know, it's interesting. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is being criticized for feeding someone on the Sabbath. And he tells this story. And he says, don't you know that David ate the sacred bread? And you kind of scratch your head because in other places, Jesus says that, that we're, we're all to abide by the law of the Old Testament. And then in Matthew 12, he's saying, here is a wise exception in David's case. Just as he's saying that the way in which he's handling the Sabbath is a wise exception. So, uh, you know, wisdom is a profound and mysterious uh, God-centered thing. And that's exactly what Ahimelech was applying here. But notice the main point is that God is protecting his servant David. And I've listed this as what I call knob theology. And here it is. His mission brings his provision. His mission brings his provision. David was the Lord's anointed, and God will provide for him. And brothers, you are his anointed, and he will provide for you. And let me just ask you, did you have something to eat this morning? You say, no, I'm on a diet. Well, I'm not talking about you. For those of you that are not on a diet, did you have something to eat this morning? Well, can I just say very simply, that's to remind you that God is providing for you in every aspect of your life. Every time you take up a little cracker or a cookie or you eat a meal or God provides for you, just take it before the Lord and thank Him for it. Why is it a good habit simply to give thanks when you sit down to eat? You're recognizing that it comes from the hand of God. I'm sure David thanked Ahimelech. Ahimelech should have been thanked. But the ultimate one to thank is God. And that's the point in this text. God will take care of His anointed. And when He anoints you, which He's done if you're a believer, you are set aside for His service, just like David was. And when you get set aside for His service, you're going to be put into dangerous situations. You're going to be put into situations where you feel like you have not a friend on the face of the earth and where you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from. That can happen to you. And God is simply saying here, He'll take care of His anointed. He'll protect His anointed. He'll provide for His anointed. Now, there will come a day when your life is to be over. God's already appointed that day. And we don't know when that day is coming. But up until that moment that God has appointed for you, that the end of your life has come, He's going to take care of His anointed. And He'll keep you alive as long as He wants you to be alive. And He'll keep you in whatever condition He wants to keep you. When, David was in, when Paul was in prison and he didn't have any provisions, he said, I've learned the secret of being content, whatever my circumstances. There's a secret to it. The, secret, the word secret is mystery. There's a mystery to this. What's the mystery? You trust the Lord in whatever provision He brings and the state or condition that comes with that. And He provides for His people. That's what's being shown here in this wonderful paragraph. Now let's look at verses 10 through 15. And we're going to see secondly, not only in our poverty does God feed us, but in our fears, God delivers us. Look at verses 10 through 15. And David rose... And fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, 
the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Well, this is a great story. <laughs> now, if you back up into the previous paragraph, you'll notice in verse 7, there was this man, Doeg the Edomite, and we'll come back to him because, of course, he ends up betraying all the priests of Ahimelech's clan later on. He's an Edomite. Saul had defeated the Edomites and obviously taken this man into custody. And it says here in verse 7, he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That word chief can mean mighty or violent or obstinate. So he was a violent, apparently a violent, strong man. And uh, he looks very suspicious in verse 7. And I'm sure one reason David wanted to get out of Dodge was because of Doeg the Edomite. He was close to Jerusalem for one thing. Uh, it, it was hard to hide himself and his men. But he also, this Doeg the Edomite looked very suspicious to him. So David was hightailing it out of there. Now, turn back in your uh, ESV study Bible to the previous page and look at the map. This will give you a feeling of where, where David's going now. Look at Jerusalem right in the uh, middle of your page there, a little bit north of the middle of the page. You see Jebus or Jerusalem. Just north of there you see the city, the old town of Nob. That's where David went. Now from Nob, he goes to Gath. Look to the west-southwest of Nob. <clears throat> and you go about uh, 30 miles. That's about 30 miles from Nob to Gath. And that's where David has gone. And you'll notice, look at that, on your map, that's in the realm of Philistia. That's the Philistines. So why in the world did David go to the land of the Philistines? Well, because the, the king of Israel was, it was after his neck. And, you know, Israel was fighting with the Philistines. David thought, I need to go over there with the Philistines for a while and hang out with them. Uh, Israel is having a hard time dealing with them, so maybe they'll have a hard time finding me over there. Now, check this out. David has just been at Nob, and the only weapon the priest has is this relic, this sacred relic of the sword of Goliath that David captured. And, of course, David used that sword to chop off Goliath's head. So it was, it was now ensconced in the Hall of Fame, you know, among the priests. That was the only weapon they had, and they gave it to David. So where's David going now? He's going to the town of Goliath, for heaven's sakes. And he thinks he's going to hide out there and be incognito? I mean, what possessed him? I mean, it shows you how desperate he is. So he goes to Gath, the town of Goliath, with Goliath's sword, for heaven's sakes. What's the man thinking? So he goes to Gath to try to just mix in, you know, with everybody. <laughs> he's famous, infamous in Gath. It'd be kind of like Officer Warren Wilson just trying to hang out and have coffee with people in Ferguson right now. It ain't going to work. You know, everybody recognizes him. His poster is on the post office. You know, everybody knows where, who David is. So as soon as David gets there, you can see what's happening. The people say, hey, man, uh, our widows in this city lost their men to this guy. Do you remember he's the one of whom it said he has slain 10,000. 10,000 what? 10,000 people from Gath. You know, so David is in the very place where he's been taking the lives of people. He's in huge danger. But notice what he does. He starts acting crazy. And this is a very important lesson for you when you go to work today. I'm just teasing. <laughs> David, David, we know, was an uh, incredible musician. <clears throat> we also know that he was an exquisite poet. So he was a man who not only was very athletic and very powerful and a great leader, but he was, he was well-trained in the fine arts. So I have no doubt that he was actor extraordinaire. And he, he really knew how to put it on. And so 
David starts drooling, and you know he starts making strange marks on the wall, kind of like some of you do. Uh, and you know when I look at this description of uh, insanity, I'm thinking, let's see, making strange writings and drooling. Well, that applies to some of us here in this room, so maybe we're doing the same thing. I don't know, but uh, here he is. He's just drooling all over his beard, and what? And he's already been taken into custody. You can see this because it says in verse 13, pretended to be insane in their hands. So he's in their hands when he's doing this. And Achish then says, can't you all see this man is mad? Do I not have enough crazy people on my staff here? Do I need one more crazy man? (laughs) You can see he's criticizing his own people. You're half crazy for having this man on the staff in the first place and have him in here in our military force. Get rid of him. Get him out of here. And shall he come into my house? So look at this. God delivers us. Can you imagine a more difficult spot to be in than to have righteously taken the lives of 10,000 people? You go to their village. They recognize you. You've got all these war veterans there and all these widows, and you think you're going to escape. Well, you probably won't unless God is with you. And God was with David in our fears God delivers us. Now, what we need here is what David got, and that's called Gath theology. And I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Psalm 56. This is one of the psalms that David wrote in Gath. And so when David gets in distress, his, art, his artistry flourishes. Uh, it's amazing how that happens. You know, those of you who are talented in the arts you know that sometimes it's it's the deepest pain in life and the sorrows of life and the difficulties of life that often inspires your song or your your playing and moves you deeply in your spirit. David's the same way. When I look back, I have an old journal that I kept in the early part of my ministry, and it's amazing. Most of those journal entries, they're not at high times, they're at low times. That's when I'm engaging my journal. That's the same way David is. He's engaging his journal in the low times. And the reason is he's deeply engaging the Lord in his low times. And he can't help but have it overflow into his journal, into his poetry. So let's look at at 56. And I want you to see here Gath theology. Number one in verses 1 through 4, trust his power. Trust his power. Now let's look at these first four verses. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long an attacker oppresses me. This is page 1005. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. Where do you think that came from on our coins? Right here. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Well, I'll tell you what they can do to you. You can take your head off, just like you took Goliath's head off. But he's saying, by comparison, if God is with me, who shall be against me? By comparison, the power of God is infinitely greater than the power of men. And David gets this perspective precisely when he's facing the power of men and when he's having to work out his true theology. What he believes about God is coming to the fore now when he comes under pressure. Like we say, Christians are like tea bags; They do their best work in hot water. That's the way David is. That's the way Christians are. We're going to do our best work in hot water because we learn then to trust His power, not the power of men. Notice, secondly, verses 5 through 7, we must trust His justice. Now look at this. All day long they injure my cause, verse 5. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So David is describing honestly how he's being pursued. And Saul will be at the very middle of this. But look at verse 7. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. So David is trusting in the justice and the vengeance of God against evildoers. When you trust God to exercise justice toward evildoers, then you do not uh, inappropriately try to wreak vengeance on evildoers. The, one of the problems with the mobs, even if they're right in what they're saying, 
when they destroy businesses or they try to kill people because people have been killed. They're wreaking vengeance. They're not trusting God to wreak vengeance against all those who have done evil. The man who's really trusting God for his justice will hold his peace and will only engage conflict as God directs him in it. We're not the ones who bring vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David's learning that, even while he's surrounded by vicious enemies. Now, notice in verses 8 through 11, we not only trust his power, his justice, but we trust his love. This is the heart of it. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. He's saying, Lord, you've not missed one time in the middle of the night when either I was having a nightmare or I couldn't get to sleep because I was tossing back and forth in fear of man. You counted every single one of those. You noticed every time that I was in distress. So in God's love, David is professing now that God sees and sympathizes with every one of our troubles. Notice the next phrase. He says, you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So here, the, David is shedding tears. He's thinking about his life. I used to have a decent life. I was the little brother in a family. I cared for the sheep. Everything was going fine until I took the life of that Goliath. And nothing's been the same since then. What's happened to my life? And here I am trying to serve the Lord. And look at me, I'm on the lamb, being chased by the most powerful man in our country. Tears of sorrow and regret. And David says, Lord, you know every one of them. You know the price I'm paying to follow you. Don't think for a minute that you've done anything for the Lord, that you've suffered in any way, and He has not taken note of it. Don't think for a moment that you've done even the smallest deed that is for His glory that He forgot. Not once. He will not forget one thing. You'll forget most of everything you did. You will not be able to remember the kind deeds that you did. You'll not remember all the times you persevered through difficulty. David, uh, David knows that God hasn't forgotten one of those things. And not as though you deserve it because all of your things are mixed in, uh, with evil motives. Nothing you did was a pure deed. But God will condescend in His fatherly love to reward you as though it were intrinsically good. That's God's kindness to you. And David recognizes God's love for him. It's massive. And he says in God, uh, he says in verse uh, 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Now look at the situation. David is in the midst of dire straits. And he says, this I know. God is for me. Can you say that when times are tough? Can you say that when you can't pay the bills? Can you say that when you're afraid your business is going bankrupt? This I know. God is for me. Can you say that when your wife says she wants a divorce? Can you say that when your child tells you they don't believe in Christ and they're not going to follow Him anymore? Can you say that when you lose a child and you're at the funeral? This I know. God is for me. This is where Paul gets it. That Paul says that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? This I know. God is for me. How do you know it? Because you're His anointed. Because you've been included in His family through faith in Jesus Christ. And David knows this. And it comes to him in the midst of these troubles. Look at verses 12 and 13 lastly on this psalm. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. So what we learn in, in this uh, uh, section, this Gath theology, is that we must thank Him for His deliverance. Thank Him for His deliverance, number four. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You see what David's saying? He's returning thanks in two ways. He's saying, Lord, I trust your power, I trust your justice, I trust your love. You will deliver me in your way and your time. And here's what I'm going to do. I am going to praise you. You want to know why we go to church? It's just really simple. God has saved you. That's why. He's been delivering you all week long. That's why. Because He's put bread on your table all day long. That's why. And you go to the great assembly of God's people simply to render thank offerings to Him. Why do you put an offering in the plate? Is it just to pay the bills? No. It's to render thanks to the Lord. That's the reason that we go to church and we assemble with His people and we lift up our voices and we bring our gifts 
because He is worthy of thanksgiving. And sometimes when people are wealthy, people are doing well, and people are healthy, they stop praising the Lord because they think maybe these are just natural cause and effect phenomena, that God really doesn't have anything to do with it. But you get people in poverty, you get people war-torn, you get people in distress, and all of a sudden they'll turn to the Lord and give Him thank offerings. Why? Because now they're noticing that God is the one who's protecting them and providing for them. That's what David's saying, I'll give thank offerings. But notice what else he says. I will walk in the light of life. So Lord, you deliver me, and you have delivered me so that I will live a life of thanksgiving. Not just give gifts, not just sing songs with my poetic and musical skills, but I will walk in the light with you, regardless of what it costs me. That's what David is saying. That's Gath theology that you know when you're in distress that you're only going to be delivered by the Lord, and when He does, your life is going to burst forth with thanksgiving and praise and obedience. Now let's turn to the next uh, section, uh, which is uh, verses 1 and 2. Let's go back to uh, 1 Samuel. And let's look at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And here we're told that David departed from there and escaped. So there he is, he escapes. Who did, what did he escape to? The cave of Adullam. Look back on your map and you'll see it's about 10 to 12 miles to the east of Gath. Now David's coming into Judah territory again. And there are caves there. You can see them now. And they're huge caves. I mean, a cave room would typically be as big as this room right here. These are not little, just little niches. These can be massive rooms. And some of you have been to the caves in that part of the world, and you know that they can, they can be amazing uh, uh, rooms and spaces. And David was in an area where these kinds of caves would be available. And uh, what we're going to learn in these two verses is that in our loneliness, God comforts us. In our loneliness, God comforts us. Let's finish reading. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What a motley crew this man now has. Uh, he is gathering those who are uh, in distress, or the word could be translated oppressed. They're people who feel oppressed and bitter in soul. They're, they're malcontents. They're people who are in debt. They owe money or property to others, and they're gathering to David. And isn't it interesting that when that happens, sometimes you feel more alone than if you were all by yourself. And you may wonder, why were David's mighty men such... A crummy crowd of guys. Well, look, they were being oppressed. That's why. Uh, they were marginalized. By whom? Saul. Undoubtedly, David was gathering people who had complaints against the king. Now, here's a, here would be a good example in our own day. You know what a hero a Nelson Mandela was. How we hold him in very high esteem for leading South Africa out of apartheid into a democratic society where both white and black uh, will have equal access to political power and economic power and all the rest. He's a champion of the 20th century. But he spent decades in prison on, uh, on the island outside of Cape Town uh, because he was distressed and he was oppressed. And earlier in his life, uh, he was considered by the U U.S. State Department as a terrorist because... Some of his troops, uh, so to speak, were using unusual methods, some violent methods, to react against an apartheid, uh, unjust, unethical government. So what you had in South Africa was a mess. You had a government itself that was being unjust. What's the reaction? Well, most of you here are Americans. Let me ask you, what did you do when you had an unjust king who is just taxing us. They weren't killing us. They were just taxing us without representation. What would you do? <laughs> you got out your musket. <laughs> you were a bunch of terrorists. And you hid behind trees and shot people with red uniforms. 
And then you got legitimate. You got Mr. George Washington. He was the general, and then he became the president. He legitimized all of us. We became a country. Now we have laws. And now we talk against people who are terrorizing others, don't we? Because we're now civilized. We're organized. Well, that was kind of what Nelson Mandela did. He was kind of the George Washington, if you will, of the new South Africa. Well, this is what David is. And when, you, when you're oppressed and when your government is acting unjustly, guess who comes to you? Other people who are angry, other people who are oppressed, other people who are poor. And so David's naturally attracting to himself those who are the oppressed. Now, I'm sure Nelson Mandela would tell us, and I'm sure George Washington would too, if you really want to learn how to lead men, there's no better place to start than a gang. <laughs> if you want to learn how to lead men, get a crowd like this and lead them. If you can lead these guys, you can lead anybody. And David learned his earliest lessons of leadership with a bunch of scoundrels uh, who were righteously trying to preserve their own life and righteously also fighting against some of God's enemies. But they were a bunch of scoundrels who had been marginalized by society. So it's very interesting whom he draws to himself. But David himself is a, is a righteous man. He's obviously not a perfect man. We've already seen that. We're going to see a whole lot more of that in 2 Samuel uh, where David messes up big time. But David was a man after God's own heart. So David is surrounded by people who don't share the same full ethic that he has. And that makes a man feel very lonely. David is in the cave at Adullam. And I want us to learn something about David's cave theology. Now, there are several psalms written on this occasion, but I want us to look at Psalm 142. The reason is we could also look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57 is a little bit more triumphant. That, uh, God, I know that you're going to destroy these men, my enemies. God, I know that you're going to provide for us. So you have a little bit more self-confidence or God-confidence in 57. But by the, when you look at Psalm 142, what you're seeing is a man who just seems to be completely burned out. He just, he knows there's not anything left in him. It's gone. It's drained out. Faith is now at its full extent because all he's got is faith. He doesn't really have much left in himself. And for that reason, I call it cave theology. And I think it's very, very helpful for us. Let's look at Psalm 142. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, notice that we cry to the Lord. Cave theology teaches us to cry to the Lord. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. Do you get the point? David is taking every pain, every complaint, every sorrow, every hurt, and he's articulating it to the Lord in complaint. Gentlemen, this is the first step in really getting to know the Lord. Know your need and take your need to Him and talk to Him about it. That's what prayer is all about. Go to the Lord, cry out to Him, talk to Him. It's amazing to me how far a man can go facing the troubles that you face in business or your families or in this community or with your health or with other people's health that you love, how far you'll go before you finally just crash before the Lord and cry out to Him. How far will you go? Cave theology teaches us that's the first place to go. Cry out to the Lord. Now secondly, notice in verses 3 and 4 that we look to Him alone. When my spirit faints within me, verse 3, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Now, this is a strong statement because David has in the cave with him 400 men who appear to be men who are loyal to David. He also has his mommy and his daddy and his brothers. Because David's on the run and he knows that Saul is a terror and that Saul is going to punish David by taking the life of his family. So he gets his family out of Bethlehem and takes them to the cave with him. So he's got 400 men and he's got his family of origin there and he says, I don't have anybody who cares for my soul. Gentlemen, I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point, 
but it's good to go ahead and get there. And if you haven't been there, let David take you there, ultimately. With the care that you need for your soul, there's nobody who can give it but God alone. Your pastor can't give you what you need. Your wife can't give you what you need. Your girlfriend can't give you what you need. Your children and grandchildren can't give you what you need. There's only one who will really care for your soul. And David, in the midst of his deepest distress, learns that clearly. We need to learn it clearly. Nobody really cares for your soul like God does. You need a personal relationship with Him. You do need personal relationships with other people. You do need a personal relationship with your pastor. That's true. But that personal relationship with your pastor is not going to save you. That personal relationship with, with a good godly friend is not going to minister ultimately to your soul. It's not going to give you what you need. There's only one personal relationship that's going to do that, and that's with Christ Himself, the David's greater son. You've got to know Him. And David is saying here, in this very strong language, no one cares for my soul. He means, God, you alone must provide for me, spiritually, psychologically, because nobody else is going to do it. Now, the more you've been in spiritual leadership, the more you know this to be true. We all know that leadership is lonely. But spiritual leadership can be particularly lonely because the very people who look like they were going to be your allies will sometimes turn their back on you. Jesus certainly experienced that, didn't he? He had one who betrayed him. He had 11 others who ran from him when he was in his deepest time of need. What you find in spiritual leadership that you will hit those moments when it looks like everybody, really, even family, has abandoned you. If you're, if you're in aggressive spiritual leadership, that's going to happen to you. Look, cave theology, turn to the Lord alone. That's the whole point. That's the reason that Elizabeth Elliot in her book on loneliness says, loneliness is our friend. Because loneliness introduces us in a new way to the Lord Himself. Let loneliness have its way with you so that it causes you to find your one true eternal friend. That's what David's learning and teaching us in this psalm. Then look at verses 5 through 7. We should prepare our response. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. Here we go again. Bring me out of prison, this prison of loneliness. Why? So that I can thank you. So that I can acknowledge that you are the God of all gods. So that I can tell everybody how gracious and kind you are. Deliver me so that I can be a, a thank giver. That's what he's saying. And bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. You see what David's saying? That Lord, in your deliverance, I'm trusting in you alone. And here's what you're going to do for me. You're going to deliver me so that I thank you. And then you're going to surround me with people who are true mates in the Lord. And gentlemen, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surrounded by brethren who are no longer going to abandon us, no longer going to disappoint us, attack us. We'll be surrounded with friends. That's the deliverance of the Lord. We trust Him for that. So we're, in, we're being delivered so that we can give thanks for what He's doing now and what He'll do in the days ahead. That's cave theology. Let's keep reading back in 1 Samuel. It's great, isn't it, to have not only the events themselves, but David's reflections upon them. Now look at verses 3 and 4. We have the fourth episode, the first, fourth little scene here in our drama. And we learn here that in our helplessness, God governs us. In our helplessness, God governs us. Look at verse 3. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. Now we don't know exactly where Mitzpah is, but we know where Moab is. You can look back on the map uh, on the previous page. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the word stronghold is the Hebrew word Masada. <laughs> so... Some of you have been to Masada, which is an amazing stronghold. They're just uh, west of the Dead Sea. 
We don't know for sure that that's the stronghold David was in, but it very likely could have been. But before he was there, on the west side of the Dead Sea, notice he went to Moab on the east side. Now, check this out. David has senior citizen parents. He's got them in a big cave, in the cave of Adullam. Look back on your map. Just about 10 miles east of Bethlehem, their hometown. Now, he's going to go down 3,000 feet down below sea level to the Dead Sea, and then he's going to hike back up about the same amount to get into the land of Moab. This is no easy trip for these senior citizens. So obviously it's very important. If he's going to go through that much trouble, it's because he knows their life is at risk. And David is going to protect the life of his parents before he continues this fleeing from Saul and ultimately engaging him uh, in, in some ways that we'll see later on. So he takes him to Moab. Now, why Moab? Okay. This is the point we want to get here. It's Moab theology. And here's Moab theology. God laughs when you tell him your plans. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, God has planned things all along for your life. Uh, before you ever got to the trouble that you're in, he already laid stuff out. He, he not only knew the trouble you're going to be in, but he laid out whatever solution he wants. It's kind of like my mama used to lay out my clothes. I guess I wasn't very good at picking them out myself. She would lay out my clothes when I was a little child. She had my, had my day planned to have my clothes. The Lord has laid out your clothes. He's laid out your, uh, the plan. Why do I say this? You realize that David's or, or Jesse's grandmother was a Moabite, Ruth. David had Moabite blood. He had some relatives that he could talk about in Moab. He had a place of provision. Now look, when Naomi had her son marry Ruth the Moabite, she's going, a Moabitess? My son's marrying a Moabitess? Marrying a Gentile? What's going on here? <laughs> and she, I know that was very upset. And then her son dies. In fact, both of her sons and her husband dies. She's completely bereft and all she has left is Ruth and the other daughter-in-law who stays in Moab. But Ruth says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Ruth goes with Naomi. And she marries then, uh, of course, Boaz, and through them comes the line of David. Now, do you think this God's going, well, look at this, what a surprise. No, when you tell God your plans, He just laughs. Uh, he's already got plans for you. And David is recognizing that. He's, he's understanding that his lineage, as thin a line as it may be into the Moabites, he's got a place of refuge for his parents. God had that all worked out. Now lastly, look at verse 5. And here we see something very important. It's the fifth scene, if you will. And here the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now we don't know exactly where the forest of Hereth was. We're guessing. But we know that it's in the land of Judah. And here's what we learn. In our ignorance, God guides us. In our ignorance, God guides us. You'll find Gad in 1 Chronicles 29. You'll find him in 2 Chronicles 29. Gad was uh, a prophet of the Lord. He was used to worship the Lord. And Gad comes here to David and gives him the word of the Lord. It looked to David as though he was on the road to recovery. He'd gotten his parents out of town. He'd gotten them well taken care of in Moab. He now was in a stronghold that seemed to be a very defensible position. But only the word of God could tell him what he needed to do. And guys, sometimes it looks like you know, you've got your life all set out. You've got your 401K and your IRA and everything all set. you got all your plans out there and everything's going well for you. You think you've got everything planned. Do you realize how desperately you need the Word of God? Only the Word of God can guide your life. You can't do it with your logistical planning and all of your great wisdom and, and abilities of predicting the future and all this. Forget that. You need the Word of God. And when you abide in God's Word, He will lead you to make decisions that you would not otherwise have made. And we need to be listening to the prophets and the apostles still in our lives today. That's the reason we come to Amen Bible Study, because we want to learn how to read the Bible and understand it and then apply it. Apply it. Put it into practice. 
there's the wise man who has a paradigm for figuring out what God's pleasure and will would be in every circumstance that he faces. Here, Gad gives David some surprising guidance. Get out of the stronghold, get out into the open, and go into the forest of Hereth. It surprises you, and you ought to expect the Bible is continually surprising you. You expect to serve a God who has no surprises for you, and you call Him God? God ought to be surprising you all the time, and those surprises come from abiding in the Word of God. And then notice what David does with the Word of the prophet. He obeys it. He takes it for what it is. Not just the Word of Gad, some scrawny nerd prophet, but he takes this as the Word of the Lord to him, and he abides by it. And you'll find that David's life is blessed even through all of his distresses, all of his major traumas and problems, because God can speak to this man. And the word of God came to Saul, and Saul didn't listen. And that's the difference between Saul and David. Saul, didn't li- Saul had the prophets, but he didn't listen to them. David had them, and he listened to them. What about you? You've got the Bible. You've got Christian fellowship. Are you listening? Are you abiding by the word of God? When we do, then in our lowest moments, we learn the highest things about the living God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our brother David and for the amazing lessons that he learned about you. We're so thankful that you were faithful to him and that you showed yourself a reliable God in the midst of his deepest trials. And we pray for ourselves that no matter what we're facing in these days, you will help us to trust you, your power, your justice, your love, your companionship, your intention for us. And then, Lord, help us to thank you with all of our lives and all of our substance for all that you have done, are doing, and will do for us, the anointed, the brothers, of David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We make our prayer in His name. Amen.